We find ourselves at the end of John 14 as Jesus is in the middle of this farewell discourse. His, his final encouragement and instruction for His disciples before His departure. John 14, let me begin reading at verse 25. And we'll read and then ask the Lord's help. Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And now, Lord, would You come to the promised Holy Spirit? Would You take the words of Your Son? Would You apply them to our hearts and minds? Lord, I pray for the children who are old enough to listen that they're their ears would be open, their, their minds fixed, their hearts awakened to hear and believe Your truth. I pray for the adults that we wouldn't be thinking about what's coming later today, later this week, even the great events happening around the world that are a frustration to us, but that we would be ready as disciples to hear the Word of our Master, to believe it, to stand upon it, and to receive help through it. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus is about to leave them. That's one thing the disciples know for sure. And it's, it's upset them. They can't imagine going on without Him by their side. And how can they manage? He is their teacher and Lord. He is the one with the words of life they need to know and walk with God. But He's leaving. And because He's leaving, Jesus spends the bulk of John 14-17, through this final discourse ending in a prayer, preparing them for what's coming. Assuring them that He is not abandoning them as they fear. That He has made provision for them. The Holy Spirit will come. And with the coming of the Spirit, they will have everything they need to continue in faith, to grow in His grace, and to know and walk with God faithfully to the end, no matter what is happening. And church... That assurance He gives them is meant for us as well as we stand here at this point in history. Christ has promised that we, His people, will have everything we need to stand firm in faith, to grow and flourish in this culture at this time, no matter what may be happening in the world around us. And that's what I want us to look at here this morning. The promised help and peace 
and assurance that are ours in Christ. So let's begin there. The promised help of the Holy Spirit as our teacher. Verse 25 and 26, these things Jesus says, I've spoken to you while I'm with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So so Jesus is preparing them for what's about to come. And He says, I'm giving you this comfort now while I'm still with you because soon... I will no longer be here physically, but don't fear. I'm not abandoning you. I am leaving you in really good hands. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will come to you and provide you with all the help you need to carry on. Now let's look at this promise. What is Jesus telling us here? First, He's telling us that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, is coming to us from the Father... In Christ's name. Now that's a promise that we're meant to bank on. What does He promise? First, we notice the Holy Spirit is the Helper. We saw this a couple of weeks ago back in verse 16 uh, when Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. We saw then that this word Helper is the Greek word paraclete that it literally means someone who is called to your side. Someone who who comes to you, a friend who cares about you to be with you, who, who stands beside you to help you, to comfort you, to strengthen and advise and counsel you. Jesus says, all that I have been doing for you up to this point, He will now do for you. He's another helper. I've been your help to this point. He's the helper coming to remain with you. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending you help. Second, this helper is, we notice here, the Holy Spirit. This is the only time in John's Gospel he actually goes by that name which which, which emphasizes his holiness, his perfection as the Spirit. And, And he's given that fuller name here, I think, to make it clear to us just who this is. This is not just a power or influence or force coming to energize us. This is the very person of God. The third person of the Trinity, equal in power and deity to the Father and to the Son. And so Jesus isn't just sending us help in some abstract kind of way. He is sending us the very presence of God to be with us. So just as Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us in the Incarnation, so the Holy Spirit is God with us now. Where He is present, God is present. So Christ promises that He will be present with us. Third, we see that He is sent by the Father in Christ's name. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father in the Incarnation to be our Savior... So the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father on behalf of the Son to indwell us and to apply that salvation to us in every area of our lives. And so we're told He comes in Christ's name. In Christ's name. What does that mean? Now this is very important. To come in someone's name is to come as their representative. 
If I am your legal representative in court, I go to court in your place. I stand there as representing you, as if you yourself are there in me. And so a representative takes the place of the one they represent in order to further their interests and to work on their behalf. And so the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for Jesus. He doesn't come to us instead of Jesus, you know, to, to do something different than Jesus would do. He represents Christ to us. He comes to continue Christ's work in us on Christ's behalf. And so Christ and the Holy Spirit are partners in this work of salvation with the Father. What Christ began, the Holy Spirit will bring to completion. Now, think about that one just enough to really get encouraged by it. Fourth, we see then that He comes to continue Christ's work, specifically here, Christ's work of teaching so that we can know and walk with God. Verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, what's He going to do? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit comes to do two things as He continues Christ's teaching ministry to us. First of all, it says, He teaches us all things. Now all things here doesn't mean all things that can be known in the universe. The Holy Spirit does not teach us trigonometry. There are math students who have wished that was true. But it's not. He doesn't teach you trigonometry. He doesn't teach you how to bake a pie or install a toilet. That's not what this means. What he means is he teaches us all things that we need to know to know and walk with Christ. All that we need to know to live a life that is pleasing to God as we do trigonometry and bake a pie or whatever else we do. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. He will teach us all we need to know. And then, second thing He does, He will bring to memory all that has been taught. He will bring to memory all that has been taught. And He does that in two ways. First of all, for these disciples themselves. This command, this promise is initially given to them and it's important to see that. This promise is given to them that He will bring to their minds everything Jesus has taught so they can pass it on to us. Uh, Throughout John's Gospel, you've noticed there are many times the disciples, well, they just don't get it. That they misunderstand the things that Jesus has said. And being fallible men like we are, they will forget much that Jesus said. So, in light of their fallibility, in light of their humanness, how can we rely on their memories to give us Jesus' words in the Bible faithfully and clearly? Ah, enter the Holy Spirit. He will come, Jesus says, and cause you to remember everything I have taught you. This, dear Christian, is the assurance that you need that what we have in the Bible is the Word of God. Inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, reliable, everything we need provided through the Holy Spirit by the memories of the apostles that we might have His Word in its clarity. 2 Peter 1.21 says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But second, 
growing out of that, this promise is also for us in that it assures us we have, can know, and will understand the, the, the Scriptures. We have His help. The Holy Spirit not only causes them to remember Christ's words and set them down for us, He preserves Scripture, He also helps us understand and apply and remember what has been set down for us. He illumines Scripture is the way we would say that. So what we're left with here is a reliable record of Christ's words faithfully written down in Scripture and the promise of Christ's Spirit to help us understand and apply those words into our lives for our salvation and our good. And so, dear one, what's, what's, what's left to you based on that promise is this, take up this word daily. Take it up. As, as Augustine heard someone sing-songing in the neighborhood, tole lege, take up and read. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand what Christ has written down. Believe that He will indeed do so because He's promised and that He will bring you into the saving truth and guide you into the God-pleasing life that is His will for you. But it starts with taking, a, taking Him at His Word, taking His Word, believing in the help of the Holy Spirit. And so first of all, Christ promises to send us the help of the Holy Spirit that we might know and understand God's Word. Second, we also have the promised peace of Christ in the midst of this world of chaos. Verse 27, this is one you should have memorized, right? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so we remember that He is leaving. But before He leaves, He promises to leave them with a parting gift of inheritance. That's actually what these words picture. The leaving of an inheritance. A, a parting gift, if you will. Um, R.C. Sproul describes this uh, in his little commentary, he says, verse 27 is Jesus' legacy, His last will and testament. The only thing that we know Jesus ever owned was His robe. And that was taken by the soldiers who gambled for it at the foot of the cross. He didn't have an IRA, a trust fund, real estate, or a fat bank account to pass on to His disciples. Nevertheless, he was about... Uh, as he was about to leave, he bequeathed to his disciples a monumental legacy. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So, so what is this promised gift of peace to disciples? First of all, we understand that it is the peace God promises throughout the Old Testament to give when Messiah comes. The Old Testament is filled with this promise of peace. Numbers 6, 24-26, the priest was to stand before them and say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Psalm 27.11 May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Peace was promised in the Old Testament as the fulfillment of God's saving activity, but peace was rarely experienced by them in the Old Testament. 
Instead, Israel knew war and turmoil almost continuously, division and brokenness. But the prophets understood that God's peace was coming. When the Messiah came, He would bring in this legacy of peace. Isaiah 54 verse 13, this is sweet. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Ezekiel 37 verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's what he calls the New Testament here, this era we live in. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And now Christ stands before His disciples and says, that promised peace has come. The peace God promised through the ages, now it's yours. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And that brings us to the second thing. This peace, this is Christ's own peace. This is the peace that defines His life. This is the peace that flows out of His heart. Isaiah 9.6 calls Him the ruler or prince of peace. Meaning this peace is His. He controls it. He owns it. He has the power to give it as He will. And so what kind of peace is this? The Hebrew word for peace, you're probably aware in the Old Testament, is the word shalom. It's that word that Jews often use uh, for, for hello and goodbye. Shalom. Shalom. But, but, but shalom is a, a very deep word. It, it means more than just a political peace or the absence of conflict. It, it means more than just a peaceful, easy feeling that you have inside. Shalom brings a wholeness, a, a contentment, a satisfaction of the soul in the presence of God. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. So what is this peace? This peace Jesus promises is a resting with confidence in the faithful promises of God who is your good. Stuart, I had no idea you were going to sing that song. I'm resting and resting, but it fits beautifully. Resting with confidence in the faithful promises of God. And if you think about it, That's exactly what Christ brings into our lives when by faith we're joined to Him through the Gospel. This Gospel of peace, as Ephesians calls it, brings us Christ's own peace into our lives. It brings us Christ's own peace in at least three ways. First and foremost, it brings us peace with God. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by faith we've come and been counted righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a dancing moment, by the way. Because listen, the biggest threat to humanity is not that Putin's war might provoke a nuclear exchange leading to World War III. Maybe that's a threat. It's not the biggest threat. The biggest threat to you and every human being on this planet is that you are at war with God through your sins. A war we will lose and suffer for all eternity if something does not change. 
Jesus on the cross brought that change by taking our sin upon Himself, suffering its penalty, and bringing peace. Oh, listen, dear sinner. Listen. You are in danger today. You face a hopeless situation in your war against God. You cannot win. If you continue this fight, there is nothing but misery in your ultimate future because God's wrath stands firm against every sinner in their sin. But Christ has taken that wrath upon Himself for all who will believe and established peace with God for all who trust in Him. Oh friend, trust in Him. Come under the shelter of Christ's shed blood. Come into this peace He establishes with God. And so there is peace with God for all who trust Him. But second, that also brings us into a peace with one another. In Christ. Ephesians 2 14 to 18 says, For Jesus Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now, here He's speaking of Jews and Gentiles separated in so many ways culturally and religiously, but this applies to all the divisions of humankind. He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father." And so He takes us who are at odds with God and at odds with one another in our human hostility and He unites us as one in Christ. And that's a work that is still going on today through the preaching of the Gospel. In our sin, we always find ways to create division and strife. I mean, have you seen any division and strife in the culture lately? But this is the legacy. This is the hope that Christ gives. This is the inheritance He promises to us as we follow Him. He brings us to Himself and together in peace. Third, it also brings this promised peace, a real and lasting peace, into our lives personally. Philippians chapter 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. As so you notice, there are, there are actually two kinds of peace here. There's the objective peace that we have with God and one another in Christ uh, because Christ paid the penalty on the cross in real time and space and cleared the decks of our sin for real. We have peace with God and one another whether we feel like it or not. It's a reality. 
But then there is the subjective peace. This is that peace that we do begin to feel and experience in the midst of turmoil and chaos that rules this world. This peace that surpasses all understanding and secures our souls as we continue looking to Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 brings these two pieces, these two kinds of peace together when it says, Now may the Lord of peace Himself, there's the objective reality, He is the Lord of peace. May the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. There's another one I would suggest you memorize, right? This is the peace that Christ gives us. But notice, He goes on, This is not the peace the world gives. It's a whole different animal. The peace of the world, because the world has a kind of peace that it pursues and it tries to get to, but the peace of the world is temporary, fleeting, and let's be honest, ultimately disappointing. How many times have we been promised peace in our time? Some of you know history and you remember Neville Chamberlain coming home to England from a meeting with Hitler, waving the the, the agreement Hitler signed. Oh, that faithful Hitler. (laughs) Peace in our time. Within months, the world was at war. Or, generation before that, the war to end all wars. Kids, if you don't know it, that's what they called World War I. The reason we talk about World War I is because there was a two. (laughs) It was not the war to end all wars. Caesar Augustus in 13 B.C. set up a monument to himself to celebrate the Pax Romana. That is the peace of Rome brought by Rome. They brought peace to the whole known world, they said. But what kind of peace was it? Well, it was the peace of subjugation brought by the sword and the boot. Uh, Once all the enemies were dead on the field, there's nobody left to wake war. Uh, One of the Scottish chieftains who dealt with the Romans said, these Romans come and make a desolation. They destroy everything and then they call it peace. That's the kind of peace a man like Putin looks for, right? We can have peace after you're all dead. This is not the peace the world gives. What kind of peace is the world's peace? It's, it's the peace of subjugation. It's the peace of, 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 of being crushed. And that kind of peace, man's peace, cannot last. It will not satisfy because it never solves our deepest needs. Only Christ can do that. And so third, this peace that Christ gives, He tells us, is an emboldening, empowering peace. Look what He says at the end of verse 27. This is good. Let not your hearts be troubled because you have this peace. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Because this peace is a spiritual reality brought into our lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit, it has power to conquer our fears. It gives us boldness in the face of dangers. It gives us courage in the face of our enemies. Notice what He commands here. It is a command. Because you have this peace, He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let it happen because you've got peace. I gave you this peace. So don't let yourself be troubled because this peace is right there. Take hold of it. Speak to yourself, He means. Say to yourself, heart, take courage. Christ is near. And He has promised to give all that I need to stand. So heart, stand firm. Take Christ at His Word. Believe His promise of peace. Believe His provision of hidden strength. And take your stand here and now by faith.
against some temptation, against some persecution, whatever it is, stand firm. In fact, that, that final word, let them not be afraid, a bunch of words in English, one word in Greek, it literally means, let it, meaning your heart, let it not be cowardly. Don't buckle under the strain of your adversaries. Stand firm knowing I'm with you. Uh, To feel His hand on your shoulder leading you forward. And, And so, we are promised help from the Holy Spirit to know and apply God's Word so that we can walk with Him. We're promised the peace of His presence to secure and strengthen our lives so that we may stand with Him. And then third, we see the promised assurance of Christ's victory over the enemy of our souls. Verse 28, You heard me say that I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father and the, the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I'll no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. And so Jesus returns here to the reason that they are feeling troubled. This news that He's leaving them has upset them. But notice what He says. You're looking at this all wrong. (laughs) If you loved Me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. So, So notice here the priority, and in fact joy, the priority Jesus places on being with the Father and how that ought to be our same priority. I mean, he says, if you really love me, and by the way, the way he phrases that indicates they just might not love him as they ought. If you really understood the situation, you'd rejoice with me because I get to go home and see my Father. This is Christ's highest possible joy. To be home with His Father. To delight in His nearness. The words of Psalm 73.28 would surely express Jesus' attitude here. But as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. The nearness of my God. Do you ever, do you ever think about that? I would encourage you think about this verse and that, and that psalm the next time that you're standing at the bedside of a dear saint, a friend who's about to go home and be with Jesus. We stand there and we're broken. Our hearts are heavy because we're about to lose their fellowship. And we're sad. We grieve. And we ought to have some measure of gladness if they know Jesus. Because very shortly their eyes will close to this earth and open to a realm beyond imagination and the presence of Christ and the Father with the Spirit and they will know for the first time in their lives joy. Notice the reason for this joy. For the Father is greater than I. I get to go to Him. These words, sadly have been misused by many in church history to claim that Jesus is somehow less than fully God, not full deity, somehow a lesser being of some kind. The ancient Arians 
Heretics made that claim. Jehovah's Witnesses will stand on your doorstep making the same claim, Unitarians and others. The problem for them, many problems, but one of them is that Jesus makes this statement in the very book, the Gospel of John, where His full deity is so very clearly on display. I mean, open the book, start with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say, and that Word became flesh, and His name is Jesus. John 5.18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Why? Well, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. John 10, verse 10, he says, I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to stone him. He says, why are you picking up stones to stone me? Because you, a mere man, claim to be God's Son. You've made yourself equal with God. One with God. One in deity. One in majesty. So this is not in any way diminishing Jesus' claims to deity. So what does Jesus mean then? The Father is greater than I. Remember where He is and what He's doing as He says these words. Context matters very much. He's standing with His disciples in His incarnate state as man. Never forget, not only is Jesus fully God in every way, He is also fully man in every way. Fully human, just like you. Made for a time, Hebrews declares, a little lower than the angels. Christ in His incarnate state as man made Himself a servant, a slave, as Philippians 2 says, placed Himself in complete subjection to the Father. How many times in John has Jesus said to us, I'm only here to do His will. I only speak His words that He gave me to speak. So He came as a man sent from God, God's messenger, and as God's messenger, Jesus places Himself under the Father's full authority as He even says in John 13, 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so as a man, Jesus humbled himself under the Father's hand for us, for our good, for our salvation. And now as a man, he's about to return to his Father's presence and glory and joy, and he can't wait. And so this in no way diminishes Jesus' deity. Instead, what it does is it magnifies the Father's glory. Here's the thought we're supposed to have. If Christ the Son longs for the joy of the Father's presence this much, how much more should we? Jesus is showing us here the worth of the glory of the Father's presence. Christ has always been the Son of God, the Son of the Father. The Father has always been the Father Father of the Son. They've always been in that, that beautiful relationship along with the Holy Spirit, wrapped up in the joy of one another's presence. And so here, as the Son, He rejoices at the thought of going home and being in the Father's presence. And oh, dear Christian, so should we. But notice also the assurance... Christ gives here in His Word and about His Word as we continue to listen to Him. Verse 29, And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. 
Now, can you see how Jesus is shepherding their souls and by implication shepherding our souls here? Reminding them and us to keep listening to His Word because as we listen to His Word, all that He's promised is going to come about and our faith is going to flourish. I've told you what's going to happen before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. Then listen, if you're struggling with doubt, you're wondering how far to trust these things, keep your eyes on Jesus. Put everything else aside. I don't know about this. Don't Look at Jesus. Yeah, but what about... Look at Jesus. But I was wondering... Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Watch what He does. Watch Him keep His words to us. And He will give you every reason to believe. Then we can talk about those other things. But it begins with Christ. Early on as a, as, a, as a believer, I struggled sometimes just as people do with the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, you know, in light of this, in light of that, what about this question? What about that debate? And then it occurred to me, what about Jesus? As I began to look at Him and know Him and see His reliability, see His trustworthiness, see His faithfulness, suddenly I know this man will not lie to me. This man who is God affirms the truthfulness of His Word. I'm taking it all based on His Word. Look at Jesus. Third, notice the assurance He gives them of coming victory. I mean, the end is never in doubt here. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the word, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So Jesus knows His time with them is short. When this night is over, He will no longer be there physically to instruct them. Even now, it's like He can hear the footsteps of Judas on His way to the high priest to betray Him, and then soon Judas will be back with soldiers to arrest Him. And so Jesus says, the ruler of this world is coming. Now elsewhere in Scripture, who's the ruler of this world? Elsewhere we're told that it is indeed Satan. Satan is the usurper of this world. He has no right to it, but he's taken possession of it. He's taken control of it through the sins of men. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And remember, that evil one has now taken possession of Judas back in John 13.27. So when Judas returns with the soldiers to arrest Jesus and put Him to death, Satan is there orchestrating the whole thing. A deep evil is about to draw near as Satan inhabiting Judas comes seeking to put an end to Jesus' life and an end to His mission of salvation. But watch what Jesus says. He's coming, but He has no claim on me. Literally, He's got nothing on me. He has no hold on me. The only hold Satan has on any human being made in God's image is through sin and the death that sin brings. Christ has no sin. Therefore, Satan has no hold on Him. 
When Christ dies, it is not because Satan won, but because Christ chose to give His life a ransom for many. And three days later, when He rises from the dead, Acts 2.24 will say, it's because death could not hold Him. He's got no handholds. He's got no handles. He's got no place Satan can take hold of. And so the cross and the grave are not signs that Satan won, but what? They are evidence of Christ's victorious love. Verse 31, but I do, meaning His death that's coming, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Two things motivate Christ's death on the cross. Do you see them there? First, the Father's command. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. God sent the Son for us and our salvation and the Son came willingly in obedience to His Father's will. Second motivation, the Son's love for the Father. You know why Christ died on the cross? We tend to think it's all about us. Now we're involved. God's love is on display in the sending of Christ, but there is a higher motive than us. For even more than He loves us, Christ loves the Father and He longs for the Father's glory to be seen. By giving Himself in death, Christ makes God's mercy visible to us so that we can see it and believe it and be saved. And when we believe and are saved, God gets the glory. And Jesus says, this is why I'm doing this. Satan has nothing on me. Get back, Satan. (laughs) You win nothing here. This is all for the glory of my Father. And then Jesus ends by saying, Rise. Let's go from here. It's time. It's time to begin. Let's head toward the garden. By the way, we'll see next time that they don't get to the garden immediately. It appears that you ever been with a crowd of people and you say, Let's go. And then you linger in conversation that appears to be about what's going to happen here. But it's interesting, these words also mean something else than let's leave right now. These same words could be translated up, let's advance, meaning against the enemy. Let's advance against the enemy. He's coming. Let's go face him. Christian, this is the final word here for you and me. This is the promise. In this world of war, in this world of turmoil, in this world of frustration, in this world of lies, in this world uh, where, where there seems to be nowhere solid to put your feet, go forth in courage, strengthened by Christ's Word, assured of Christ's peace, promise of Christ's victory on the cross. Taking hold of these things, let's advance in faith. Christ is not a victim here. He is the victor and we advance in His train, resting on His Word, secured by His peace, promised a share in His victory. 
Let's pray. Father, as we face the enemy on many fronts, as we stand in unsure, tumultuous times, we can lose our way if we're looking around at the wind and waves beating against us. But here is the call of Your Word through Your Spirit that Christ has provided all that is needed, that Christ has given us all the help that we will require. And in that help we stand firm. God, give faith, give assurance, give grace, help Your people to rely upon Your promise and to stand firm. Therefore, in Jesus we pray. Amen.